Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. I know I shouldn't really be using this platform that I have in the Irish Times Second Captain's podcast just to get something off my chest. Murphy Ken. But in this case, I, yeah, I have to unburden. It's been it's something that's been bugging me for a few days. It's something I witnessed in the streets of Dublin city centre. Not, not even in the streets, in a bookshop. In fact, there I was perusing the shelves. Ken, go on. Yeah. The point is, I couldn't help but notice that the fella standing beside me, well, he too was having a gander at some of the books there. He was also drinking a packet of popcorn. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't just mean, no, no, no. I don't just mean what you're about to say. Drinking the last bits. Yeah. I mean, we've all been guilty of that. You yeah. know, you get to those broken down little bits at the bottom of the crisp bag. and you, you it's, just, it's just a more effective use of your time, really. Yeah, yeah, no. I, 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 if it was just that, that's what I thought it was, to be honest. And I thought, oh, that's a bit odd, really, to do that, standing beside somebody, a stranger in a bookshop. But I've probably done it absentmindedly myself. Mm-hmm. Then I noticed, hang on, he's doing it again and again. I mean, he repeatedly shook his bag almost ostentatiously, lifted it to his mouth, guzzled down a load of popcorn, and repeat repeat by four, at least. That's a scumbag. Is, it, is, it, is there a <laughs> He's problem a scumbag, with that? yeah. Going around eating popcorn? I mean, drinking popcorn? Well, I mean... Like drinking drinking a food? Think think for a moment of the spillage to left and right that you're dealing with there. Well, I, I, I mean, how effective a funnel really is a packet of popcorn? Not he, all that effective, I wouldn't have thought. Was he hold some, holding something in his other hand? You see, I, well, I suppose he was giving him... I don't think he was holding anything all the time, but I, you know, and I was obviously staring at this guy quite a lot after yeah. a while. He was using his spare hand to kind of flick through the books. Yeah. So maybe that was his argument. It, this was actually a nod to good literature, maybe, drinking the popcorn. Yeah. He, did, he didn't want to get... You know, that sort of popcorn-y residue <laughs> that you get at the tip of your face. You didn't want to get that on any book that he may yeah. not eventually buy. Okay, that's okay. No, I'm unburdened. That's all right. I think that's a logical explanation for drinking popcorn I, well, in public. I still don't think it's right. I say live and let live. Um, yeah. I say don't sweat the small stuff. Danny Wilson emails, Akara, firstly, kudos on your star turns treading the board of the most venerable Liberty Hall Theatre. Gripping, insightful, revelatory. Your performance is so captivating it even managed to quell the state of Republican fervour I'd been driven into by the hallowed surrounds. For that I thank you. Sadly though, this is where the praise ends. On my way home, as I thumbed through my complimentary copy of the Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 2, it didn't take long for me to stumble across a staggering, shameful omission. I speak, of course, of your crap mascots list and the absence of the San Diego Chargers Boltman this list perhaps in the case of Boltman crap is not the word if you want to google him there Ken google him as Boltman San Diego Boltman. You, you pronounced him Boltman there Bol- Boltman <laughs> like, a, like a news anchor uh, US news Boltman anchor. <laughs> yeah with the 6 o'clock news yeah no this guy is not a news anchor he's uh, a yeah. terrible mascot okay he's, un- he's undoubtedly the most singularly nightmarish mascot I've ever encountered part Max Headroom part Jim Carrey's the mask all mixed with that luminescent liquid cheese that you only get in cinemas his presence is made all the more threatening <laughs> when one considers his capacity to harm look at the size of his arms this lad looks like he could bend a girder in half a girder that could perhaps be provided by the Pittsburgh Steelers better though not wholly dissimilar mascot Steely McBeam but I digress I strongly suggest you consider reprinting the annual to amend this embarrassing editorial misstep misstep you're welcome Danny who emailed in to secondcaptainsatirishtimes.com are you looking at Danny's mascot well I've, I was at uh, I saw Boltman and then I moved on to Steely McBeam and he's a well he's actually a he's a flyover estate kind of guy <laughs> 
Yeah, wearing a yellow check patterned shirt, uh, workman's hat. Uh, very, very. I think they call them statement eyebrows now. Yeah. yeah well, he's got a pair of them. Pair of statement eyebrows. Statement um, eyebrows. Uh, lantern jawed. Oh God, that's good for me. Yeah. Guy. No, Steely McBeam's not bad. He carries a beam as well, which is, you know, I suppose good. Your thoughts on Bolt Man? Well, I'm surprised there wasn't a lawsuit from the mask franchise because the exact same yeah, yeah although the color is the, the exact he managed to nail the color exactly exactly the color of that cheese that gets dribbled across <laughs> the in the cinema um there are obviously a lot of these mascots in american sport um cosmo the mascot of the la galaxy someone i always remember cosmo always looks as though he's turned up at the game having been out for the previous 48 hours <laughs> Mask- uh, mascot of the people yeah, I mean, check out Cosmo. I think it's with a Z. <laughs> and, uh, His eyes are, yeah, mm, wow. Yeah, he's a little... Uh, every, he's a every, little bug-eyed, all right. Every night's a weekday. <laughs> Week, <laughs> weekday. Week, week, weekend. Weekend night yeah, it's, for Cosmo of the LA Galaxy. Yeah, but I suppose it is Los Angeles, you know? It's a party town. He, he has not held out a steady job in a long number of years <laughs> as LA Galaxy. Well, thank you, Cosmo. Danny, and thanks very much for the kind words about the Liberty Hall show, our 750th podcast, one of our nicest ever live crowds, I must say. I'm glad you enjoyed our great guests. How amazing was Ty Furlong, by the way? U.S. Murph's new favourite Irish rugby player. U.S. Murph first regaled the crowd with tales of how he'd been reading Ty Furlong interviews and watching the clip of him busting all blacks around the place. And then, of course, we asked Ty about that moment. We showed him the clip of him destroying Kieran Reid and others. And I think I asked him... Something along the lines of how his teammates, surely, even the hard-to-impress teammates that you would have on an Irish international rugby team, must have been blown away by that show of strength by Ty. Yeah, it came up in the, the video review and um, Joe Schmidt said, oh, here comes WWF. <laughs> <laughs> so not even WWE, WRF, so we're going back <laughs> yeah. to eight years. Yeah, 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 that'll be my year now yeah, watching yeah. The, the rest and, of it. Um, so, of course, the lads jumped on the bandwagon and started like Rikishi, the big fat support. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have been the line of the nightmare. Certainly one of them. He had a lot of great lines. He did. He did. Uh, and uh, I, I think that the person running the Witty Island Twitter account would like us all to say that Witty Island is not a barren place. Like oh, Tyke yeah. Said, but it is, in fact, an oasis of peace and calm. That's and where if, his uncles are from, yeah. And if you fancy a, a getaway break, even in the wintertime, <laughs> Witty Island, it's the place to be. That's Witty Island. Okay, it's uh, time now to talk a little bit. Well, I suppose we're kind of getting to the point at this time of the year. In fact, before I big up our interview later on, just to mention that you can listen back to those shows if you haven't heard our live shows and also have a look at the videos that we tweeted from uh, at Second Captains. You'll get a nice flavour of what went down at Liberty Hall Theatre. But as I was saying, we're getting well into December time now. Reflective end of year kind of territory. To that end, I'm looking forward to catching up with Thomas Barr at the end of today's podcast. I think one, he was one of our, uh, our standouts, a 400 metre hurdler from Waterford who endured a pretty miserable early part of the year through injuries before he picked up form at the right time and just ripped it up at the Olympic Games. He had those amazing finishes to the heats and the semi-finals and then was the most relaxed man in the Olympic Stadium when mm. he ran in the final. It was incredible. Uh, non-stop smiling, non-stop good vibes he's putting out there. And we thought for a split second watching that race, can he, he can't. He's got too much to do here to get a bronze. And yeah, well, if you remember it. the race, I mean, if it's the 405-metre hurdles, he probably ends up with a medal. <laughs> uh, they stiffed the us, Murph. Can we feel outrage about this? Well, I mean... Didn't they used to do this in yards? I mean, you know, I don't know how uh, I don't know how how it comes out in the wash. There is a yard longer than a meter. Ken? No, it's shorter. No, it's considerably shorter. So that wouldn't have helped. He wouldn't might come sixth or seventh then actually because right, okay. he finished strong. Okay, so scratch that. Sixth and forty meters. Yeah, that's we'll fair enough. Better the devil you know. On. We will I mean, have uh, a yard is is thirty six inches and a meter is thirty nine point three seven zero one mm. inches. So. There's about uh, 3.3 inches in the okay. difference. Okay, so. thanks, Ken. Thanks. Thomas Barr on the way to the studio later on, but let's start with the news that the phenomenally successful Pat Lamira at Connacht is finished, Simon, or at least it will be at the end of the season. Are you as shocked as a lot of people, or are you shocked that so many are shocked? Yeah, I am shocked that people are shocked because he had already hinted that he'd had offers. We knew when he came to Connacht he had other offers. Um, he is ultimately from New Zealand slash Samoa, so... He was probably going to go back or change. Uh, you know, he spent half his career in the UK as well. I'm just shocked that it's Bristol. Uh, and I'm shocked that it's been announced in the middle of the season. We didn't know that there was this clause, this six-month clause in the contract that it, he had to give that warning. So mm. 
it's obviously he kind of felt it's now or never. The money was so big. It's kind of like set myself up for the rest of the rest of my life. But yeah, it's the timing and the club that he's going to. That's a shocking bit. We're joined in studio by the author of Front Up Rise Up, the official story of Connacht Rugby, Jerry Thornley. How are you? Very good, thank you. We had planned to talk to you about the book this week anyway. <laughs> Didn't realise we were going to be also talking about this <laughs> bombshell. Seems like I don't, you kind of get a sense that Connacht as a province has been punched in the gut a little bit by, by the news that Pat Lamb is heading off. Yeah, well, it's a measure of what Pat Lamb has achieved at Connacht that the news of a coach resigning created such a media storm and public storm. I mean, it would never have happened in the past if Michael Bradley, even when Eric Elwood moved on, it got nothing like this reaction, which shows you what he's achieved in the last three and a half years at the province. Um, And I think, I mean, I've heard some people say they're not surprised. I was, I must admit, I was very surprised. I thought he would see out the last two years, this season and next season of his contract. Um, Although now you listen back to interviews where he was asked about his future and he sidestepped the the issue quite brilliantly. And there had been rumours that he'd been talking with Northampton, which seemed, as a former club, a more likely destination, next port of call, whenever that might have come up. I think also what really surprised everybody was Bristol. Obviously, the financial package um, on offer to him was quite extraordinary and will go a long way towards setting him and his young family up for life. And I think this is very much talking to him about this. This was very much a family decision, family first, and he did it with a heavy heart. He did it. it was, you believe him when he tells you it was the most difficult decision he ever made. The timing, people have questioned um, in the week of the Wasp game. The proof will be how the rest of the season unravels, starting this over the next two weeks and the two games against Wasps. In some respects, it might be no bad thing that they have to quickly turn their attention to such a, a huge game and get this over with. My understanding is that there was a six-month um, get-out clause as such, a release clause, but this also came with a six-month notification to Connacht. They had to be forewarned, to be forearmed and go and get themselves a successor. So I think that's why, they're, that's why it's been timed like this. There's no good time for this. It is very disappointing. There's no doubt about it. You, you feel disappointed for Connacht because um, you just would have liked him to see them stay there for the next two seasons. Let's listen to him speaking. It's quite an emotional uh, explanation as to some of the reasons why he's decided to leave. When I went down to Killaloo to see my good friend um, Axel to, uh, at his removal, and I saw Olive and I saw the two kids, um, when, I, when I left there, and again, Axel is in that same environment that, that we all are as head coaches and the challenges of that. But when I saw him there and and then found out what happened and it was so close because we were, we were in the same situation, I could picture everything because I'm in that situation myself. I'm the second pet lamb on this earth. The first one and I was named after my grandfather and he died when I was nine with a heart attack at 55. Last week, my, my father, through this whole process, um, I shouldn't shouldn't have been here, but thanks to technology, he was going through a quadruple bypass. I have heart issues anyway, um, but what it did for me is when I left Killaloo driving home with Willie and Tim, all I could think about was if that was me, what would happen to Steph and the kids? So that ties in a little bit, Jerry, with what you were saying there, that he was saying to you about it being a family-led decision. It's not, it's not the u- usual standard managerial send-off press conference. He's going into quite a bit of detail there as to his thought process. Maybe he felt he owed the province that, he owed the supporters that, that he had to explain himself a little bit. Yeah, he probably did. He knows how people have felt let down and disappointed by all of this, and he probably did feel that he had to give a very clear explanation and it's very heartfelt and explains why family comes first. And you've got to remember, he was the number eight opposite Anthony Foley in that 2000 final. He was the number eight for Northampton. Um, similar age profile, everything else. And um, yeah, I mean, I think you've got to, you've got to realise that this is about the most precarious existence there is to be um, a, a head coach in a professional team sport. Um, you're at the whims of you know refereeing decisions, bad luck, injuries... Um, supporters turning against you, media turning against you, owners, stroke CEOs turning against you, and you, you know when was he going to get such a financially attractive offer again? I'm I'm hearing it's in the ballpark of seven to eight hundred thousand a year, which would make him probably the best paid coach. Not bad for a team that are going nearly to nearly relegated to the second division. Yeah, exactly. And also, I would think you know Bristol, it is a rugby hotbed. And they are very, very ambitious. This owner, Stephen Lansdowne, is very financially well off and he's ambitious for the, for the club. 
and it probably appeals to them and him, both them being Bristol, the owner, and also him being Pat Lamb, that he can, if you like, build them up from a low base, akin to Connacht, you know what I mean, and maybe take them up from the Championship next season. But we'll be tied him if he doesn't at the first attempt, is all I'd say. We cut a clip there, Jerry, uh, of one and a half, two minutes. And, but honestly, you could have picked 10 minutes. It, he brought up, you know, work-life balance, um, family, uh, roots, uh, health, um, you know, all these different elements to life. Like, you just don't hear coaches talking about this. This is a few couple of days before a massive game in the Champions Cup. He, he's kind of speaking from the heart. He's trying to justify his decision. I'm just wondering who he's talking to there. I don't think it's the media. I think he actually just feels guilty Mm. about leaving the Connacht fans because reading your book, the whole theme of it is him driving to Leitrim and Roscommon and Sligo and, you know, coming up with this identity and, and bringing the training uh, sessions to different parts of the of the province and just getting a feel for Connacht, first of all. I mean, there's an example you have where he's trying to decide whether to go to Connacht or not. And he's in Dublin Airport walking up to perfect strangers and saying... What's Galway like? Have you ever been on holiday there? What's it like in the winter? What are the people like? What's the scenery like? And pretty much everybody said, oh, it's amazing. It's the best part of Ireland. Yeah. Uh, I go on holiday there all the time. Uh, all the best people are from Connacht. So he had this warm glow about mm. the decision before he made it. Um, but then I don't know if that quite tallies with this press conference where he's trying to justify all these different things. And I believe him. But at the end of the day, it's Bristol, you know, low profile, not doing particularly well. And it's money. So it, this decision is about money. Should he not just have come out and said it's about money? I mean, most coaches are these cold-hearted beings who just move on to the next job. They don't justify themselves. They certainly don't speak for, you know, 15 minutes about all their whole previous life. He talks about things like his daughter, uh, no, his family being racially abused in the wake of the Auckland job. You know, his daughter being approached by reporters. Just really personal stuff mm. that he didn't necessarily have to go into. Um, he's a very forthcoming individual. He's a great talker, you know. Amazing talker. Amazing talker, which is great for a book. I'd safely say I interviewed him more than anybody else for this book. I wouldn't like to think how many interviews he gave me. I plagued him. I was reading him (laughs) all the time. And he was so giving of his time. I must have interviewed him eight, nine, ten times in person. I must have had 20 to 30 hours on tape. Um, I'd like to probably thank my sister and my son now for doing helping me so much with the transcribing because otherwise it would have been another year before this book came <laughs> out just to transcribe Pat Lamb. He's a phenomenal talker. He does. He is very forthcoming. He's very giving as a talker and he does reveal a, a lot of himself and that is typical of the man because as soon as he went into Connor, one of the first things he did, within a month, Tim Mullen had been there for 15 years and he said within a month, Pat Lamb had seen more of Connacht than he had in the, in the 15 years he'd been living in Galway because he had literally been to all five counties already. He really embraced the whole concept of Connacht. He changed how Connacht felt about themselves, never mind how they played rugby. He was a catalyst for all of this. I'm not sure an insider from one of the five counties could have achieved it. Maybe it had to be an outsider and had to be a visionary like him. And he's very steadfast in his beliefs and how a game how a game should be played and how effective it can be and all the culture that goes around that. And I think you're right, there is an element of guilt because he is leaving the dirt and it is a financially driven decision. I know he hasn't said that in so many words, but I think by talking about safeguarding the future of his family, of his wife and children, he's more or less admitting this is a money decision. Surely fans have to cut him some slack. And I know he drove a sort of a movement there and you describe it very well. And he he bought into the values that were there and he brought his own values to the thing and... There was a, there seemed to be a real closeness between him and supporters, uh, which maybe explains why it seems to be hurting a lot of people now so badly. But when you look at it logically, of course he was going to leave eventually. I yeah. mean, there was, there was, there's always going to be clubs that are going to pay a lot more money than Connacht are ever going to afford, and it's maybe just the the fact that it's it's Bristol. Like you know, I don't know if he'd gone to one of the bigger name, if he'd gone to. A wasps or someone yeah. like that Northampton, might have heard a little club, yeah, Northampton would have made a lot club. more sense yeah, yeah it would have yeah. made a lot more sense it, the, Sorry, not even more sense but it would have been easier to accept maybe from yeah supporters. and the scale of disappointment within the Connets fan base is quite palpable you must remember as well the fan base has probably tripled in his time there another of his great legacies expectation is now through the roof compared to what it used to be but I think People have got to cut him some slack in terms of, A, that it was a family-driven decision because it's financially such a, a good deal. I mean, he could be a better paid coach than Joe Schmidt now. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it could set him up for life the next three years financially. And you've got to respect that decision, like I said, in this very precarious existence they have. And I think also, when the, you've got to understand, for the reasons I already outlined, the timing is, not partly, of his, is partly not of his making. And it does afford Connacht ample time to find a replacement. It was key, if you read the book, in 
Pat Lamb took the job to t- take over from Elwood announced his decision to step down in October mm. of the 2012 b- before the end of that season that gave Connacht ample time to find a replacement and Pat Lamb admits in the book that by dint of them coming to him in early January with a concrete offer before English clubs might have come in with an offer in maybe March or April bird in the hand as he says in the book mm-hmm. bird in the hand he decides to go to Connacht plus he loves a challenge and by God they were a challenge as will Bristol be and I think as well when the dust settles, the proof, like I said, will be in the pudding over the next few weeks. If it if it derails their season and they go backwards as, as, as a result of him leaving, that is going to leave more of a bitter taste in the mouth for everybody concerned. I think he has a sense of guilt and he would fervently hope, I would fervently believe, that the first result he would check every weekend will be Connacht and he'll keep a close eye out for them. He'll want to leave a legacy. He'll want, as Eric Elwood allowed him to come in for the last couple of months' season and watch him brief, he would want whoever comes in to replace him to do the same. Um... And ultimately, when Connacht come to naming a replacement, they do so with a much better financial, a much better financial footing, much better organised um, province with Willie Uran and all the staff they now have in place compared to what they were, a much higher fan base and a much better squad, which is largely of his making. Um, so I think in that, in that sense, there's going to be a huge legacy that goes way beyond just winning a Pro 12 title, which was huge in its own right as well. He's changed the way they think about themselves. He cha- he's changed Connor forever. They'll never be the same again. When you read the book, I mean, you take it through the, the full history of how we got to mm-hmm. this point. Um, where do you put the balance of influence from Pat Lamb? I mean, you line out the positions that they've come in the league. It's like 10th, 11th, 12th, and then a slight improvement. You know, 7th, I think, was the best ever before they won it last year. You know, if you were to put a percentage on it, what, what, how much of it goes to Pat Lamb? Well, the first six seasons of the of the league, they finished tenth. Um, sometimes of eleven, sometimes of ten. Once I think of twelve, so tenth for six years in a row. Then a ninth, then a couple of eighths under Eric Elwood. Then they come, then pack him in. They were back down to tenth in his first year and seventh in his second year before they won it last year. So you have to say it's been extraordinary. Put it in this context, Simon. On this very weekend, three years ago, in Pat Lamb's first season at Connacht, they'd won their first game at home to Zebra. And they then lost 10 in a row, culminating in a 40 or 50 point thrashing at Murrayfield against Edinburgh. He went home that night, completely revised the defensive system, stayed up all night um, and came in on the Monday morning and went through a new defensive system, like homework. He had them all take out notepads and pens, told them to bring notepads and pens and this was going to be the new defensive system. So they weren't getting overloaded on one side like they had been doing and where everybody had to be as a basic you know, basic, it was back to school. It was like like primary school. And they came out the following weekend and they beat Toulouse away. And that was an important benchmark win. And over the course of... And that was based on defence. Yeah, large on defence. Yeah, yeah. yeah large on defence. And one magnificent break by Kieran Marmion, which I think Robbie Henshaw finished off. And it was a stunning win. I mean, it would be... It's got to be considered perhaps the biggest shock in European Cup history. It was a one-off result. And that was an important benchmark win and giving them all belief. Because you've got to remember in that first, that 10-match losing sequence, a lot of people, including people on the PGB, which were coming up to Pat Lamb and saying, are you sure about this? This ball-in-hand skills game and, you know, are, are kind of capable of really doing this? He said, trust me, stick with me, this will work. So I, you think of all the other candidates that were there to take over Connacht when Pat Lamb did. I think you have to give huge credit to people like Eric Elwood, who kept the ship afloat, and John Muldoon. Everybody... Every, every province needs its stalwarts, be it as Anthony Foley's or it's Paul O'Connell's or it's Ron O'Gara's or whoever, and you go through the other province, there's always been stalwarts, the Shane Jennings and so forth, that just Gordon Darcy's that just played for over a decade, one club men or whatever. And, and you've got to give Elwood huge credit for what happened, and, and, and also in his time as head coach as well, and even Michael Bradley keeping the ship afloat when they were being drip-fed. By the, by the RFU, I mean, as one chapter in the book outlines, they were very close to the verge of extinction, effectively, and only as recently as 2003. Now, Lamb was lucky that he, when he came in, that Eric Elwood had set the ground rules, that he'd agitated for change. He went up to the RFU on an almost weekly basis and rowed with Eddie Wigglesworth and said, I'm not going to, don't call us, please don't call us a development province. We're not a development province. And please build us a bloody stand, will you? Where it can't be, he, he agitated and agitated and agitated. So when Pat Lamb came in, IRFU were backing Connacht to a much greater extent than they ever would have before. I don't know that it would have been possible to sign a Bundyaki, much less retain him, until Pat Lamb came along. But that being said, I don't know of anybody else in that shortlist, when you think back, who might have got the job after I go. I don't know if anybody could have carried them to a Pro 12 title and changed what they have become to the extent that Pat Lamb did. He, he stuck to his guns and he went on with his brand of rugby. And you think back to that final last year, Simon and Murrayfield, that could have been 30 or 40-10. They, like, they well beat Leinster in the day. They were not only 
utterly deserving champions, but they're the best team to watch in the league. And we would never th- imagine these things about Connacht in the past before Pat Lamb took over. Yeah, I think it's important to put into context the achievement because it, it's amazing how quickly things feel normal. You know, mm. Connacht just won the league, but um, surprises don't happen in rugby. You get these one-offs, and they happen at international level as well, but they don't happen in leagues over a longer period. Uh, you look across top 14, yep. Super Rugby, yep. the English Premiership, the same rich clubs just keep winning it over and over and it'll probably carry on that way for the next while. So this Connacht thing is kind of, it's not just in an Irish context or European context, in a world context, it's really unusual for rugby. But if if you're looking at that, when you read the book, Pat Lamb has a touch of the, the Bill Clinton about him. You know, he's got this personal touch. You say he's got two minutes for everybody. Um, there's one little thing where there's, you know, some kid turns up at a game and I think it's Gavin Duffy speaks to him on the sideline and the kid says, oh, you came out to Roscommon or wherever it was, our, our local town and I said, I'm going to support Connacht now. So some of the fans there were people who just hadn't, hadn't been touched by a personality or the club in any way. So Pat Lamb had this sort of transcendent quality. Do they need another Pat Lamb now, do you think? Or is it a bit like Czech at Leinster where this guy bullied an organisation, but then he needed the finesse man to come in. Because Pat Lamb did a bit of both. He, he changed the culture, but he, he did some fine-tuning too. He did, didn't he? I've thought about that. It's a good question. You would imagine after such a high-profile head coach, who you say was almost like a combination of Cheka and Schmidt, he did both, yeah. that they need somebody very, very good to replace him. I would love, and somebody with Stardust. I would love to see something like Ron Nogara come in because I think that would appease the dressing room straight away to think that, right, we're not going away. We're going, the, the, the Connacht branch means business here. This is it. Nogara would be good, right? Well, he'd be brilliant. Yeah. It won't happen but because yeah. he's another, another two years on his contract with Racing Metro. And you look around the candidates, maybe Bernard Jackman. I mean, he does play a very a brand of rugby. We saw in that quarterfinal of the Challenge Cup last year, Grenoble and Connacht, which was the best match I've been all to all season, that they do play a brand of rugby. He espouses a brand of rugby which is very similar to what Connacht are playing at the moment. Um, and he is a former Connacht player. But beyond that, you're talking about going back to people who've already been there or, um, I don't know. John O'Gibbs is mentioned. John O'Gibbs is another one, yeah. I mean, I always thought Gibbs might come, he, he would have to step up to head coach material. And he's been a very clever, astute coach in the sense that he's, um, he, he knows it's a marathon, not a sprint. So he did his time at Leinster as an assistant. He's done his time now at Claremont as an assistant. It, it, be careful for what you wish for in the coaching, because like I said at the very start of this programme, it's such a precarious existence that if you get a head coaching job, that brings you clo- close to the cliff edge. Like, the same with Pat Lamb. If he hadn't made a success of Connacht, where would he have gone next? He was damaged good after Auckland Blues. He admits so himself. He had to get the next one right. You, you, if you're lucky, you get two goals. Some only get one. So I'm trying to think, John O'Gibbs, yeah, he doesn't strike me as having that kind of extraordinary larger-than-life personality that Pat Lamb has and would be such a good talker. But he might well be a very good head coach, although he's an unproven head coach. All the best coaches are certainly coming out of New Zealand at the moment. There's there's no obvious candidates coming out of Australia or South Africa or anywhere else. Stuart Lancaster, might he be of a mind to switch across? He would have to move his family, though. Leinster suits him because it's an easy commute from Leeds. But he is he's available come the summer. Um... There are, yeah, John O'Gibbs might, but they might have to take a punt and something like that. We've got to remember, very similarly, when Michael Checker left Leinster, you could have gone out and gone into Paddy Powers the next day after Checker announced that he was going. And I'd say you could have made up your odds on Joe Schmidt. It would have been Joe who, it would have been Arsene who, it'd be like that. And so these are all punts, um, and they're going to have to, they'll be helped by Noosa 4 for sure. And I think Gibbs would fit, take another box and that he's worked with Joe Schmidt before. So there'll be another one of Joe Schmidt's men in the provincial setup, which I think would appeal to Joe Schmidt and David Nusifor as well. How closely entwined are the careers of some of these players at Connacht? I'm thinking particularly of Bundiaki, I suppose, because he's a, the high-profile tweeter during the week, mm. feeling pissed mm. with an angry face, uh, angry face emoji. Uh, so that was up there for a little while. Is that a concern that some of the guys that have come over in recent times, who Lamb would have persuaded, this is the place to be, we'll, we can do this together, and now that he goes, either they go or certainly they reconsider their options? Yep. I don't know this to be so, but I would safely say the first player he took aside, maybe after John Muldoon, um, after Monday morning's meeting, when he informed the players of his leaving, uh, which was quite a shock mm. to them all. They just weren't expecting this. There have been no rumours of him going. He'd only told Willie Rand the previous Friday that um, one of the, the first players, certainly after John Muldoon, that he would have taken aside for a one-on-one would have been Bundiaki to, to prevail upon him that this is still an awful lot to play for this season. He's committed to Connacht. Um, I dare say, Simon, as well, that the, the this feeling of guilt and the level of um, reasoning and going into such so much personal history was perhaps also 
an apology towards the likes of Bundyaki as well as supporters as well. Um, and he, he, say he begged the likes of Dave Ellis to stay. Yep. So if you beg somebody to stay and you then uh, Dave Ellis is leaving anyway. But Dave Ellis, of course, is going now at the end yeah. of this month. Yeah. As he, well. was, yeah. he was the skills coach. But if you beg to, somebody to stay, you got to feel pretty bad if you then leave pretty soon after. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, um, Andre Bell left last year. Dave Ellis is leaving now at the end of this month. And he's been hugely important. He's a very fascinating character. I sat down with him. I thought it was going to be for half an hour, an hour for the book. And. Um, I think it was Tierno Halloran and Alton DeLam were knocking on the door, were looking in the door, and I was there for him with the two and a half hours later, still going through this extraordinary life story. The Wanderer just been to every corner of the world and fascinating personal life and never coached a professional team until Connacht and just came about a chance conversation with Pat Lamb one day at the uh, Rugby um, Academy in New Zealand that uh, Murray Mixed helped set up where Pat Lamb was one of the guest coaches and Dave Ellis was a resident coach and he just said to him over lunch someday, can I come over? And Ellis was hugely important to what Lamb's vision of... Um, Connacht should be in terms of the skills he, de- he, he was the one that helped develop these skills one on one with the players more than anybody else more so even than Lamb so now you're talking about Ellis going and now Lamb as well and of course somebody like Bundyaki who, and Tom McCartney who would and, and the Kiwis in general who would have been lured to Connacht largely on Pat Lamb's um, very persuasive powers and his name and a status like nobody else in that shortest I was talking about four years ago would have been would have had the same pulling power towards Connacht as he would have done and now he's leaving so it's going to be very I think you know Bundyaki's a very emotional guy and you've got to take him at face value he would be upset and so now we all know he's upset which is fair enough but we've just seen now it's going to be another test of Pat Lamb's um Skills as a, both a head coach and a man, man manager and a psychologist in how he gets Bundyaki to respond this week. And I think you'll see a very positive response from Bundyaki this season. But, we, you know, only time will tell. We've spoken about this before in the podcast, and Murph, you're very good on this, that Connacht, by definition, bring a different sort of person to the province and a different sort of rugby player as a result. And that's been their strength. The likes of Bundyaki, you profile some brilliant people, John Muldoon, who we love on the show here as well. They just have a different personality to your average rugby player that you meet. And that seems to me kind of their key advantage. Dave Ellis, too, is another good example of that. Mm. A guy coaching some school in Australia and then suddenly he's with Connacht and transforming the way they play. That seems to me their key advantage. If they're going to sustain this thing is to keep bringing those types of players that really fit into a team and a culture like like Connacht has. Yeah, very much so. And um, yeah, you think back to Bundyaki scoring that try in Thoman Park uh, last season and punching the kind of crest you know what I mean how much he's bought into it. and he's staying he decided to stay put like I know there were some clubs in Europe including Claremont Auvergne offering staggering money for Bundyaki to come and join him he's tailor made for that top 14 truck it up bruising kind of you know trench warfare across the game line you know he'd just be such a valuable signing and he's been prevailed upon to stay with Connor, which tells you how much he has bought into Connor. an awful lot of Kiwis particularly seem to become very entrenched in Connacht. I don't know whether it's the climate, whether it's the, the countryside, particularly out west towards Connemara. It's so, so, it's so akin to what the New Zealand climate and, and countryside is. Dave Ellis loves it. He always turns towards Connemara whenever he can. Um, and I just think that, like, Tim Allnut came over to see his brother <laughs> 16 years later. He's still there as team manager. Um, and I think, yeah, they do attract a certain type, and it's a strong Kiwi thing. I didn't realise until I was going through the book there, were om- there are almost too many chapters on Kiwis Goddamn Kiwis, they're everywhere yeah. they have all we have Kiwis and it's just something about it it's kind of people who are prepared to come over and set up roots and establish them and commit themselves to the long term to- and buy into what Connacht are all about and of course nobody embraced that what Connacht are all about the, the classic underdog, the, the-, the IRFU's problem child, the-, the smallest budget of the 12 teams in the Pro 12 the least number of internationals you know, and yet they go and win this thing by playing this brand of rugby because Pat Lamb sold them this vision and he got everybody to jump aboard I mean yeah I think it's going to be a huge challenge to follow him isn't it you know you think about follow that um, everybody thought Michael Check would be a hard act to follow though and look what happened they play Wasps on Sunday in Coventry yes. which I had forgotten when I mentioned earlier on oh if, they, if he'd gone to Wasps people wouldn't have been annoyed I think there might have been a bit of anger if Pat Lamb had announced ahead of the games against Wasps that he's heading there next season so uh, I'd like to scratch that I'm sure Simon's edited out by now anyway I'm sure it's fine uh, so yeah that's it it was already an insanely big game and mm. now there's a different level there's a different sort of pressure around it I don't know I'd, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to see that their performance is going to be massively negatively impacted I, I know a lot of the stuff we've talked about and maybe their season might go downhill but I don't see the players trying any less hard or the players being any less motivated or, or, or buying in any less to 
what he's doing because they're professional sports people and they're in the, uh, one of the biggest games of a lot of their careers and they know that they can trust this coach to to implement a game plan or, or to lay out a game plan for them. I don't know, am I wide at the mark? Would you be a bit concerned for Sunday? No, I wouldn't be. No, I, I don't know whether I'm caught off, too caught up now in all things Connacht or not, but... You know, you remember back to the start of the season and when they began so slowly and they just, you know, they were undercooked and um, they lost their first few games and everybody said, that's it, they're going to back down to the bottom of the table again now and the crowds are going to go away. And Bundyaki and Ulton Delano, they're gone. Bundyaki's gone to France and Ulton Delano's going back to Munster. Now, the, the Doomsdayers have finally got one right. Pat Lam is leaving, but it's the first Doomsday scenario that's proved correct. They've turned their results around and their performance around on the pitch. They've come into this game on the back of a couple of wins in a row at home. And by the way, there were sellouts at home to Cardiff and Treviso at the end of the November window. Yeah. Like five Probably years ago. Probably the greatest ago. indicator of the progress. Absolutely. Made, yeah. You yeah. said five years ago, the sports ground is going to be sold out for Cardiff on a Friday night and Treviso on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon <laughs> yeah, in the Pro 12, end of November, early December. No, I mean, it's a miracle, actually. Um, the Leicester miracle, the Connacht miracle. So I do think, getting ahead to this Sunday's match, um, without giving away too much, I know Pat has a plan. Not unlike the oh, Toulouse game. He's okay. come up with a one-off plan for this game. Very game-specific for Wasps. Um, it, they're not reinventing the wheel. as all the basic structures that are in place that they play with, but they're tailoring it quite specifically for Wasps. He couldn't attend the Phillips Man of the Year lunch yesterday because they did a double session because the Sunday game was affected their Tuesday. They did a morning session and an afternoon session. They've done a lot of work. Like I said, I think his going is very ill-timed in many respects, but maybe just the fact that it's Wasps this week away. So I would imagine... You know, they went to Toulouse three years ago on this very weekend. They won away and they got well beaten at home. Um, Ireland went to Chicago and I stupidly thought, you know, their best chance would be at the Viva. But no, their best chance was away in Chicago. Similarly, um, Connacht won away in Toulouse three years ago. This could be their better chance. They just might catch Wasps cold. It's one o'clock on a Sunday. It's not the most intimidating time of the day or the weekend. You know, it's a Friday night game, a Saturday evening game, under floodlights. You know, that can get to a referee. It's more atmospheric. The volume of support is greater for the home side. It will be that little bit more subdued being lunchtime on a Sunday. It's the graveyard shift. And I think most teams that go to the Rico Arena and play Wasps away and they're getting blown they're blowing away most teams they meet at home with big scores because teams kick the ball back to them quite a fair bit I would imagine Connor are going to try and play like they did in Murrayfield and just keep the ball keep the ball and really work the Wasps defence even if that means you know doing it in their own half and every screen left you know kick the ball off the bench exit strategy <laughs> they're going to play the Connor way I would think have a real goal like that and they've no right to win this game. It would be another miracle if they did. I would think that if Connor were to reach the quarterfinals of the Champions Cup, it would be akin to them winning the Pro 12 in terms of the scale of the achievement of Wasps and Toulouse in their pool. But I just, you never know. I just got a hunch that they're, at plus 12, they're a very good bet. Okay, what about the other uh, Irish provinces? I know we're rattling through these. Normally yeah. we'd be talking a bit more, but I think we're, it was fair enough to devote most of it today to, to Connacht. So it's Leinster, Northampton. That is a Friday night game. That's a... Uh, Potentially uh, tricky one: Ulster, Claremont, and Ravenhill, and Munster, Leicester. It really, is the heavyweights? We're playing yes. all the English and French heavyweights yeah. this weekend. All These the Irish provinces. Back to back heavyweight collisions. So, I suppose yeah. uh, quick predictions on each of those three games. Then, well, Leinster's away form is abysmal in Europe over the last few years. There's six or seven home away defeats in a row now, or something. But they did fight back brilliantly, as we spoke about in this program. They got a, a point out of the Montpellier game when it should have been a five nil match point scoreline. It ended up four one, and that's given them a slight bit more elbow room in the pool. They're actually winning the pool with six points. Okay, it's a four-way fight at this stage. I would think that, therefore, this is not actually a must-win, although it would be great if they could win because Northampton are having a very poor season. There's been the whole George North latest concussion episode and how that was mishandled by the club and now they're doing an investigation for it. Whether that will have a galvanising effect on them or not, but they're just not playing well this season. It's still a very strong Leinster team without Johnny Sexton. You'd it's be an incredibly strong Leinster team. It's an incredibly strong team, Simon. There's 11 of the team were involved against either New Zealand or Australia yep. in the winning games. And there were a lot of the best performers, yep. as in Sean O'Brien, Jamie Heasley, Van der Fleer. Like the pack Devin alone Toner, is ridiculous. And I think, Furlong. Yeah I, yeah, I know it's technically not a must-win game, but when you reflect on the November internationals and see how many of them were the Leinster players, mm. I think that puts a new pressure on Leo Cullen. Yeah, but remember as well, when they came off a November window a couple of years back um, and played Northampton away in Franklin's Gardens, they put 40 points on them. They were superb that night, coming in straight after the Northampton or November window. And I think they'll have a great momentum coming into that game because of the Irish, because of the Irish programme over November. They'll have a, they've had their week's respite last week, a lot of them. Um, they've got six or seven centurions in the team. Um, you mentioned all the good players, Devin Toner, Tyke Fernand as well. If Joey Carberry goes well, and there's no reason to suppose he won't because he's got the temperament for it, the bench is a little bit callow in terms of the back 
backline cover and you wouldn't want them to be getting any injuries early on. I do think they've got a great chance to win this game if they quieten the crowd early on. I think that's the key. First 20 minutes, we'll probably have a good idea. The main thing is, though, these are like two-legged mini-battles in themselves, so you've got to come out ahead on, on the head-to-head, mm. whether it's five points to four, six points to five, or tries scored, or whatever it is, that they come out ahead these two games. Ulster, Claremont, uh, Ulster versus Claremont, very briefly on that one. Well, I think that'll be one of the most entertaining games of the weekend if the weather's halfway good, because you've got two of the best backlines in the tournament. Claremont went to pole last weekend, I watched it. They were beaten 40 points to 35. They conceded five, <laughs> tries scored four. But they're top of the table, and they're going really well in Europe. I think that's a, a very difficult game for Lens. Ulster, the, the only thing you would like with Ulster, you'd, you'd like more ballast up front you just like more ball carriers bigger hitters in the pack they're missing that but Pienaar's on fire have a great backline Pietau the X Factor I would take Ulster just about to win that and one potentially the most emotionally charged game to last I mean there's such a there's so much motion still around Munster after Anthony Foley passing away and the, the way they've gone since then they couldn't ask for much more than to be welcoming Leicester to Tolman Park for another big occasion. What do you think is going to happen? Well, that time was, that would have been the biggest game in Europe. They were the two heavyweights, weren't they, around 2002, 2003, when they met in the final and the quarterfinal. It's like um, Anthony Foley's passing has reminded Munster who they are mm-hmm. as fans, as teams, uh, as players, everything about them. Um, it's six wins in a row now. Um, you'd have to, it's extraordinary that when you think that Leicester were the first team ever to win at Tolman Park and then became the only team ever to win there twice. And I think Munster have won twice at Welford Road, yep. which would tend to suggest that home advantage is thrown out the window. But I would think that given Munster's phenomenal um, record at Tolman Park over the years, but more particularly that they've rediscovered themselves and the Tolman Park X-Factor and the Munster X-Factor all roll into one, um, it would be a bit surprising if they didn't win the home game. But equally, it's more than likely going to trade out a one win, home win apiece. And then it'll just come down over the two matches to bonus points and or tries as to which of them emerges from the, the, two, the back-to-back matches with a better head-to-head record. Fair enough. Well, great work on the book, Jerry. Front up, rise up the official story of Connacht Rugby. Great to talk to you about all that today. Thank you very much indeed. You don't this out with Motherville. You're away, mate. Your bags in your desk. Boom. Your bags in your desk. Boom. I mean it. I'm fucking raging. Speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big teddy boots here in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need your fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! He's your biggest fool. I have a bit of a left field shout for Pat Lamb's replacement at Connacht. Don't know if you guys want to hear it. Claudio Ranieri? Not that. Well, even more left field in a lot okay. of ways, Murph. Jeff Waltz, head coach of the University of Louisville's women's basketball team. Why? What did Pat Lamb bring to Connacht above all else, Ken? That's right, a winning mentality. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Waltz is all about, if his comments after his team's recent loss to Maryland are anything to go by. We just live, right now, the generation of kids that are coming through. Everybody gets a damn trophy, okay? You finish last, you come home with, with a trophy. You kidding me? I mean, what's that teaching kids? It's okay to lose. And unfortunately, it's our society. It's what we're building for. And it's not just in basketball, it's in life. You know, everybody thinks they should get a job. Everybody thinks they should get a good job. No, that's not the way it works. But unfortunately, that's what we are preparing for. Because you finish fifth, you, you walk home with this nice trophy, parents are all excited. No. I mean, I, not to be too blunt, but you're a loser. <laughs> the next Connor coach, everybody, Jeff Waltz, currently in charge of the University of Louisville's women's basketball. Is that the kind of stuff you want out West, Murph? That refusal to accept anything enough better good than vibes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, after... After the carrot must come the stick. Yeah. Oh, and no, it sounds like that man has uh, got a stick somewhere, uh, <laughs> somewhere pretty, pretty unfortunate for himself. The, the idea that it's okay to lose. It is okay to lose. It's really not that big a deal. No, it doesn't, doesn't matter at all. Well, he went on to say, well, it might be, I don't know how it is in your guys' jobs, as in the journalists, but if I lose a number of games, my job is gone. I lose my job. Yeah, so so it's not okay to lose for a head coach. I suppose he's yeah. I suppose within the within the specific context of sports, winning and losing is is pretty important. It's mm-hmm. kind of largely what it's about. 
I like, I like the contrast in those two press conferences that we've covered today, Pat Lamb and him. <laughs> Pat Lamb talking about God, death, family, work-life balance, happiness, and an American talking about losers. Talking about kids coming home with a trophy for fifth place. Yeah. And how they should be ashamed of themselves. Should they really be getting a trophy for fifth place, though? Um, I don't... Like, like top I, three seems pretty... It's been worked out over a long number of years that... Y- y- okay, you don't have to be ruthless enough to say only the kid that wins gets a trophy, but does there come a point... Do, when I was a kid, did I want a trophy for coming fifth? I don't think I would. I actually don't think I would want a trophy. I'd say, I don't need your damn trophy. Well, I, I would think that the I did take trophy that. for yeah. eighth place or whatever, you're drilling down pretty deep into junior infants, senior infants. I mean, once you realise what sport is, then you know yourself whether you've won or not. The fact that you get a little trophy for finishing eighth, I mean, if you're happy with that, I don't think a future in sport lies ahead for you. Does it actually um, really happen, though? Or is it just one of those things that people like to get angry about that isn't, doesn't, doesn't actually really my, my exist? My two nieces just this week both won best improved, one in camogie and one in Gaelic football. Yeah. Most improved under 14. Most improved is absolutely What's fine. I have, I have no improved? issue with most improved. It depends where you started from. But well, you're not, you're both not getting, doing quite well. So. It's not like you're, <laughs> but it's not like you're getting the prize. <laughs> for, they started the best here, yeah. and then they got even yeah, further exactly. away yeah, from yeah, the rest. Yeah. No, I think, I think most improved is They also won fine. best player. They won best player and then they also won most improved. Most improved is creative. It, it shows initiative yeah. on behalf of the parents and it gives kids a feel-good factor. A fifth... A, a, a medal for fifth, the same medal you get for first? I don't know. Is it the same medal or is it just a medal with gradations like stratification of medals, you know, first gets a better medal. Like, you know, gold, silver, bronze, whatever. They go down through the amethyst wood paper. <laughs> do they do that? Um, the, I mean, the, the problem, I suppose, with what he's saying is, where does this, I won't accept, uh, give me victory or give me death sort of attitude end? Does it end when you walk off the football field? Or do you carry it into the rest of... Or basketball court or whatever. Or do you, do you carry it into the rest of your life? Do you carry it, for instance, into every conversation that you have? That'd be intense. You know. You have to win every conversation. It's, it's a zero-sum game conversation. Either you win or you lose. <laughs> and, you know, are you going to be one of those guys who, who loses all his conversations? <laughs> yeah. I Just mean, meekly listens to and accepts an, a different point of view? Yeah. Or are you going to stomp all over that person and just ensure that they think exactly the same way you do by the end of the conversation? I mean, that's a pretty fundamental question to the sort of person you're going to grow up to be, I think. Mm. We'll find out more when Jeff Waltz rocks up to the sports ground next June or whenever he comes in. All right, look, he's popped into the studio. It's only one of the stars of sport, of Irish sport in 2016. Thomas Barr, how are you? I'm good, not too bad. I wouldn't know if I go so far as to say I was a star, but um, I'm rising <laughs> no, take anyway. It. Take, take the <laughs> I'll take it, Jack. No, geez, you, you lit it up there for a few days on the track. Uh, it was great to watch. How, uh, we'll get back to that, but how has life been post-Rio? It's been pretty manic. Um, like I've been absolutely flat out the last, like you know, it's, it's nearly three months since Rio, and I don't think my feet have really touched the ground. I did take a good four or five weeks off after Rio and tried to kind of avoid anything media and uh, athletics related for that amount of time and, you know, celebrated for four or five weeks. Um, but since since I kind of came out of that, then I'm back into training, back into full flight and I'm getting, you know, requests for this, that and the other thing every every week. But it's brilliant. You know, I'm taking it all in my stride, if you'll excuse the pun. <laughs> we, we will excuse the pun. We, we, we like a decent pun here. The... You, you mentioned the achievement of, of what you did in Rio. I remember immediately afterwards, you were both delighted and a little bit conflicted at the same time, as though you weren't quite sure how to take the fourth place finish. I presume you pretty quickly you, you, you took it for what it was, which is a fairly yeah. phenomenal achievement. Oh, well, 100%. Like, how, how, how often you know, can you say that, first off, if you've been to an Olympics, but you know, come fourth in the Olympics, you know, we don't have that ma- much success in, in particular in the sprint events. Um, so like, as, to be honest, for me, when I was standing on the line after finishing the race, there was kind of, it was a 10% chance there that I thought mm. I might have snuck the medal on the line. But um, 90% of me was like, no, I didn't get it. So I was watching, you know, the times coming up on the board, first place, second place, and then there was a delay for third place. And I kind of thought, maybe, maybe they're looking at a photo finish, it was tight and it was the Turkish guy ahead of me actually got the medal, and, yeah. you know, and then I saw my time forty seven ninety seven, which is territory I never thought I'd be in. So, pretty quickly washed away any um, doubts or uh, worries I had. Particularly given where you'd come from that year, and you was well yeah. documented even in the lead up to the race. How bad was? Is it true that you were pretty close to not boarding the flight at some point? Pretty much, to be honest. Like I was about three months out altogether, and it was three months in like a key time in the season, so March to May. 
which was when you know you're starting to sharpen up, starting to get race practice in. Um, so I was only probably maybe five six weeks into training before uh, before going out to Rio. Um, so I wasn't sure. You know, it was like my dreams of getting to the Olympics and competing well were starting to slip away. But you know, in a way, it was actually almost like a blessing in disguise because I went in there completely fresh, completely relaxed, and everything was a bonus. Like, I think you could see it on the smile on my face coming over the line in the semi-final when I won, and then in the even in the, in the final. Like, that was genuine delight because of the terrible year I'd had leading into it. Yeah, because I'm, I'm really interested in this idea that you see with an awful lot of sports people. I mean, I don't know if you read Paul O'Connell's book, right? Mm-hmm. But... Say he was a guy that had to know that he had done the work, not just that he was fit, but that he knew the amount of work that went into getting himself fit. So, and I think a lot of people can relate to that even in their own work, you know, that they need to feel like they've done, you know, everything, everything is perfect and, you know, everything in the build up is prepared. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just kind of felt that, like, looking at you, it was a case of you very quickly in the run to the, to Rio decided that you'd done enough and that you've you, whatever about all the days you weren't fit that when you lined up at the Olympics you were fit and as a result you could just forget about all of the craziness of the build up where yeah. you're injured for so long and I just thought that was a really really interesting mindset to get yourself into it was very difficult I'll be honest like it was extremely stressful and frustrating those weeks I was out because I knew that while everybody else was training and getting better, I was falling way and way behind. And do you know what? When I got to, when I got to some stage about halfway through, after tearing my hair out, being on the phone, crying to my mother and my, my father about it, and venting to them, I kind of realised, look, there's no point in worrying about this. You know, there's only so much. Like all I can do is follow the advice of my physio, who you know, eventually we we found what was wrong and got it all sorted. And she literally worked day and night trying to figure this out. And my coach put together a really good plan for the time that we had left and it literally got me fit it was down to the very very last day of training like two days before the Olympics when I felt okay I'm I'm, I'm somewhat ready for this it's like when you go into an exam you know and you're thinking oh no I still need to cover this topic <laughs> I felt like I just covered that last topic <laughs> just in time like what was the problem in the end the, the, you said there's something very specific about it that yeah, your physio got to the bottom of basically like I've had this recurring problem it's a, a labral tear so a tear in the cartilage in my hip joint I've had that the last three four years at this stage now and we've been managing it but what had happened was um, my pelvis, pelvis was starting to tilt forward mm. so it was starting to put pressure on my hip joint and then up into my abs and everything and all the muscles started to get tied up there so when it ran it got aggravated and sore and I couldn't actually train but um, eventually we figured out what it was, you know, went to different specialists and, and started to work from there. Because at least we then had a fresh plan. We knew what we were doing. So mm. it kind of put my mind at ease. By the way, I, I read, Thomas, in the Irish Runner magazine that you're going snowboarding in the Alps <laughs> for Christmas. Is, I am indeed. I can't uh, wait. I can, I, well, can I suggest that your physio might prefer you to be chilling out at home rather than... I think there's a lot of people, um, my support staff and probably supporters, that would rather I didn't go, but uh, I'll be careful, I promise. Dunmore East in January is beautiful. I mean, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it is beautiful, but it's extremely cold and uh, it doesn't have the big hills and the, and yeah. the snow. You're, point taken. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, re- yeah. you really... Really, you hit your straps obviously in Rio and yeah. maybe started surprising yourself with how it came together. The semi-final run in particular was outstanding. Were you getting much of a sense of what was going on at home? The excitement no. that was building? Were you cocooning yourself away from it? Completely. I don't know if I was like cocooning myself but you know, I'd, I'd experienced it before like Europeans and World Championships whereby when you run well um, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook explode like my phone was hopping and I was kind of used to that to a certain extent I thought okay I've done very well in the Olympics this is obviously what's going to happen um, but I had no idea you know usually that kind of surpasses after a week when you come home I had no idea to the extent that you know people were telling me you have no idea what you're coming home to and I didn't because I came home and even still now you know I'm still getting handshakes in, in the shops when I go down oh fair play you did you did the country proud you did really brilliant brilliant brought me great excitement and everyone is telling me that they had the office shut down or their factory floor shut down for you know the the whatever however few, many few minutes I might have been on the track for yeah. um, so it was brilliant yeah and I was completely shied away from it all I presume your your folks would have been inundated with well wishers during the they could probably barely walk around, barely leave the house, I'd imagine, for yeah. a few days around the final. Oh, 100%. Well, they were actually out with us out in, uh, in oh, Rio. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. came out with apologies, us. And out yeah. there, they were still inundated. But even since then, they said since they've come home, they're, they're you know, <laughs> almost afraid to leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the, uh, the mindset you got yourself into for the final, and the, the, how happy, how relaxed you seem to be. Is, is there something 
it's a very specific set of circumstances but the more I talk to sports people the more and you mentioned Paul O'Connell's book actually it seems to be a grind a lot of the time and obviously Mm. your injuries there's a a real grinding nature to that then you get to the big event and it's so pressurised particularly in athletics when you just can't make one mistake really or you're in, in a sprint race or you could be gone but yet you seem to get to a point where you were totally relaxed. Is that something that you, you think you can tap back into now? Did yeah. you, was there something specific that you did that morning or in the build-up to the Olympic final that got you in the zone? I don't think there was anything specific that I did, but it is, like you said, definitely somewhere. It's a position that I want to get myself yeah. back into because I was completely relaxed. I think what got me there was I had proven myself with the circumstances that were given. I was injured, nobody expected anything of me. I was an underdog. So I came in, when I got through the heats and into the semi-finals, that was bonus territory for me. So then I could, like, you know, I was a bit nervous. I was more nervous for the heats than I was for the, the final. I was more nervous for the ner- national championships in Santry on a, a windy day than I was for the final in, in Rio de Janeiro. You know, I was just, because you're complete, I was completely in the unknown. That was my first race of the season in Santry. Um, but in Rio, I knew I was in form. I knew I was in, personal best shape I'd already kind of proven myself with the circumstances I'd had for the year so from there it was all bonus so I was completely happy just to be in the final mm. and then when I got to the final I thought you know what anything can happen I'm in shape I I might have lost a bit of fitness I might not be able to get through these three rounds as fast as I'd like but I was going to give it my best shot and when Javier Coulson in the lane inside me fall started you know it was terrible for him because it was his last Olympics and everything but it was my opportunity because it was one less person to try and beat. So, you know, anything can happen in a 4 meter hurdles race. And that's what I kept telling myself. I was like, this is up for the take and I was going for a medal, you know. Yeah. Uh, and but, but what's interesting now, I suppose, is when you're trying to get back into, tap back into that mindset. I mean, things have changed, as you say. So that's what we've been talking about, you know. Yeah, but just like, a little. Yeah. So it's changed so much in the last three or four months that the next time you line up uh, at a major championships, you know, it's not Thomas Barr happy to be here it's Thomas Barr everyone in Ireland is expecting you to yeah. Jesus, get wait to, to finals put, wait to put pressure no on pressure yeah, 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 yeah. Feel myself a bit heavier, it's going to be it's going to be impossible chair. for you to ever just feel that light again bringing some realness to the man I'm sorry okay I feel the weight of a nation on my shoulders now. thanks a million <laughs> you're interesting after after the race you were asked about the. I don't know if you were asked or you, you volunteered um, talking about doping and yeah. the suspicions around various athletes. And oh, you, I was, I'm always asked about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the hot topics yeah. in the last few years. But you you made the point that if you had you have seen other athletes and their times coming down and the way yours came down, and you said I, I don't be placing red flags myself, but that's just the way it is. That yeah. you'd be suspicious of those guys. There's always yeah. going to be doubt in people's minds over what's going on. I know I'm clean. Anyone who's been with me over the years knows I'm clean. I was just quite interested that you. I mean, the stock answer is just I'm clean. That's it. I never yeah. test positive. But you felt that you. You wanted to actually explain. Look, I know that that some people might look look at these performances and think, Jesus, yeah, is there something going on here? Well, look, like if I was looking from an outside in, saying, right, okay, this fella, you know, missed so much training and uh, he's still able to run fast. Like, I, there would be doubts of one hundred percent. I'm just being realistic at that stage, and you know, um, probably the more open I can be about it, the better. You know, I have nothing to hide. I've, you know, I've no, um, I have no reason to to not want to talk about doping like it's such a big topic but at the same time I don't want to obviously associate myself with mm. talking about it the whole time but like you know I'm tested like I, Ireland actually is is probably one of the best nations for for testing um so we're lucky in that respect but um yeah like I mean I'm just going to kind of continue as I am. there's a story I like kind of telling it's funny uh when we were at the world relay championships uh in 2015 no we were out at the world championships we were in a holding camp and Brian Gre- we're out there with the relay team, Brian Gregan and Brian Murphy and Richard Morrissey and Mark English. There's a few of us in one of the bedrooms. And Brian Gregan, is, he's a four-meter runner. He loves his stats. He could tell you who's run what and when. Mm. So he was going through um, an online kind of stats site and he was saying, you know, he was looking at progressions of athletes. And he was saying, okay, this fella um, in the 100 meters ran X and Y and Z and there was a massive difference in his times. Like, ah, red flag straight away. And he was done for doping two or three years later or whatever. Same then for 400 metres, somebody's running 48, 48, 48, and then all of a sudden he's running 45s and 44s, 44s, and then he gets caught for doping. So he was running through then, he was like, this fella here now, hold on, we go through him, 400 metre hurdles. 56, 56, 50, 50 again, 49, 48. And I was like, I was the one that piped up and said, definitely has to be and that was my record you know coming from like a teenage years into my when I moved to my new training group in Limerick and I'm changed my focus of athletics to that six second differential yeah. you know yeah. do you know so when you look at it that way you do 
I, I look at it in a very realistic way, but it's funny, like, you can jump to conclusions, but there's always a backstory. You Do, know? Yeah, does that bother you at all that that's the case now with athletics and, to be honest, a lot of other sports that people watching often reserve judgment of the yeah. of the athlete that they're, they're watching in case it you is. have done anything wrong. Like this Olympics, I think in particular, because there was so much controversy came out beforehand, I don't think there was, a lot of people were very quick to say, ah, sure, any good performance was, you know, drug related. And it was, a lot of people were losing that magic and the awe. And it's completely understandable with the amount of stuff that came out in the lead up and the amount of athletes that were being, you know, um, even like with Rob Heffern's medal that was backdated from, from London, you know, the bronze medal. Even still four years later, there's still people being caught, which is great to see. And you know what? I think it was great to see that there was so many people being caught and all this stuff coming out because it's kind of going in the right way to cleaning up the sport. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people are going to be... It's it's like the cycling when, when the Tour de France fell apart with the Lance Armstrong. I lost, you know, all interest in whatever whatever interest I did have in cycling, which is minimal, lost it completely, you know, and it's it's the same for athletics. You can see. So is it really over the last year or so then that you've been happy? Or have you have you always been happy to talk about that side of it? Is it more just in recent times? Yeah. So much has, got, has gone on that you feel, well, I might as well address the, the elephant. Well, the elephant in the room actually implies that no one's talking about yeah, it. Yeah, but everyone is, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, no, well, look, it's it's topical and it's topical to the sport that I'm involved in and it it can affect me in a direct way. So I have like I have no problem talking about it, you know. What was your own... You might not have had a chance to see too much else over in Rio, I suppose. So I'm not going to ask what was your highlight outside of your own performances. But um, definitely Paul and... I didn't get to see it now, but Paul and Gary's... Yeah. Uh, even whatever about their performance, their medal winning performance, but their interviews definitely were. I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> getting to chill out with them in the village. <laughs> they're good fun. Yeah, yeah, they're a good crack. What's the plan now for 2017? I guess the World Championships. Were yeah, World Championships are on in in London in summer, and hopefully the momentum that we've kind of built it's going to be the closest that we get to like a a home championship. So hopefully mm. we'll have a plenty of Irish contingent. People are already already telling me, "Oh, have my tickets now for your event." No pressure. <laughs> people like people yeah. like Murphy. Yeah, exactly. On. Well, I did, Murphy, I think we might have started a tradition when we had Ken McGrath in a few yeah. weeks ago. Uh, because a, we a tradition I'm very eager to continue. Yeah, we have got a number of John Milan tea towels. <laughs> <laughs> we have a limited number. We've a li- of stock a, sorry, a very limited <laughs> number. I'm delighted that and they're after the same yeah. one. So I think any Waterford athlete, any Waterford sp- sports person, should be hand delivered <laughs> yeah, a John sure. Milan skills of hurling tea towels. So this is brilliant. There you go, Tom. Christmas Thank just came much. early. Oh, it did. Am I allowed to open it now? Yeah, go oh, yeah. This is brilliant. He's like the patron saint of Waterford. Ah, oh, brilliant. So, <laughs> isn't a round of applause, please, Murphy Thomas Barr. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks, cheers. They're all pumped. We haven't got leaders. They're all just headphones. Inside and outside, blue hair. They don't communicate. You can't get anything out of them. That's why we're no good. They're all just headphones. They don't communicate on the pitch, they don't communicate off the pitch. They're all pampered. Oh, we're getting ready for Russia. Good luck. And then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu. How have England reacted to that equaliser? Perfectly. Um, no panic. Calm straight down. Continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's hearts. It's been the perfect response. You'd think that no problem. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really, Sigthorsson. Oh, my oh, word. Oh. Tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, just say, Sigthorsson. <laughs> just cannot. You know, sometimes I just don't know. I don't understand your game, Murphy. What? Just we, trying to bring we, a bit of realism. We accept we accept here. into studio one of the country's most upbeat sports people, and you've sent him out of here. Well, in fairness, we saved him with the with the uh, Milan tea towel. He seemed happy enough, but you sent him out of here weighed down with worry and anxiety about all the pressure on him for the next year. Well, no, I mean, I, we were talking about the unique set of circumstances that to, that led to him being super relaxed on the at the starting uh, position for the four hundred meters hurdles in Rio. Circumstances that will never possibly happen again. Yeah, well, Claims he ensured that by finishing fourth in the Olympic final. That's all I'm trying to say here. I mean, we have to win more. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty much. Yeah, me, Vites, Thomas Barr, President Elect Trump. We're all pretty much of a piece on this one, though. I think the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is recorded, edited, and ready for you to listen. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down to my field. I'm going to see them. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? Well, we talked a bit about certain things that happened during the week. You had to console me. You had to pick me up. Yeah, there was a certain, let's just say, a certain eminent Irish football man had some not wholly contrary things to say about your work. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. <laughs> That's maybe giving away too much as to who the eminent football man is, but it's okay, you were consoled. We don't need to uh, we also, play you through this again. We also welcomed into the studio Ian Lynham, one of the top uh, sports lawyers in the UK, who uh, told us a little bit about contract negotiations in football, how those deals get done. Uh, and the way that sort of thing is changing these mm. days. So um, it wasn't all just uh, <laughs> trembly lip. Uh, sort of Naval gazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it from us for this pod. Thanks again to everybody who made Sunday night so special at the Liberty Hall Theatre. We do need to get US Murph over again. Unsurprisingly, that guy was a lot of fun. Mm. Seems like a long time ago now. And I've recovered now, thankfully, so that's good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks Simon. Ken. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for listening. Cheers. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.